Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Hour of Power podcast. I'm Cameron, one of your hosts, and joining me, as always, is Caleb. How are you going today, Caleb? Excited. We uh, It's time for an expert interview, and we've, we've got two-for-one deal today, Cam. We do. We do. We have two experts on today's podcast. Usually, we only get one, so we've probably got twice the wisdom in this podcast. We're really looking forward to it. Uh, if you haven't listened to the podcast from Tuesday yet, we looked into monarchies, and we looked into uh, what their relevance in the world today is, what their history of monarchies, how much power they've got. We looked into all those things in our Hour of Power research, uh, but today we've got the experts on. They're going to fact check us. They're going to make sure that we've got all the stuff correct. And so we're really excited. But who do we have, Caleb? Who are our experts who are going to help us out on today's podcast? Yeah, really excited about this. We've got expert historians from the University of Sydney, Professor Robert Aldrich and Dr. Cindy McCreary. Uh, the credentials for these guys are, quite frankly, amazing. Uh, together, they've edited two uh, major pieces of literature, uh, Crowns and Colonies, European Monarchies and Overseas Empires, and another called Royals on Tour, Politics, Pageantry and Colonialism. Uh, they've also worked on a special issue of the Royal Studies Journal, which specialised uh, and talked about about British royal tours of the dominions of Australia, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa in the 20th century. Uh, Professor Robert Aldrich uh, is a professor of European history and teaches and carries out research, particularly in modern European and colonial history. Uh, And Dr. Cindy McCreary, well, she focuses on the links between the British royal family and the Royal Navy in 19th century British Empire, but we're going to hear more about what they get up to straight from them. Uh, The interview is fantastic. Really excited like you said to double the wisdom today Cam. and uh and truly they are experts and they have all the expertise that we need for this podcast so let's jump right into that interview with them now Okay, here we are. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Professor Robert Aldrich and Dr. Sydney McCreary from the University of Sydney. We're really excited to delve into this idea of monarchs and monarchies further. And can I tell you, we have some experts ready to go today. Uh, Perhaps to start off, uh, I was speaking to a colleague of yours, Robert and Cindy, and immediately when I asked, oh, who should I speak to um, from from the department who would know a lot about this topic of monarchies? And they said, oh, you need to talk to Robert and Cindy. Cindy, these are the only two people, like these, these people will be perfect. So perhaps can you give us an idea of your areas of research, perhaps where this interest in monarchs comes from and, and perhaps where your works overlapped? Because I know you two have worked together in the past quite extensively as well. Um, thanks, uh, Caleb. Yeah, Robert and I have done a lot of work both collaboratively together and with other scholars on what we call modern monarchy. So our interests are really in monarchy and changes to it as a system of government. Um, from, say, the late 18th centuries through the 20th century. Um, We both have backgrounds in different uh, nations. I'm a British historian by training. Robert's a French historian. Um, But we're also interested not just in European monarchy, but in comparative monarchy, looking, for example, at how monarchies in the late 19th century in Asia, for example, modernize, how they adapt European uh, modes of dress and of government Um, And in particular, one of the things I look at in my own research is royal tours and the way that monarchs from across the world in the late 19th century come to see global travel as a way to communicate themselves, not just to their own subjects in their own kingdoms, but increasingly to a global public. And so the importance actually of media, even in the 19th century, as a tool for monarchs to use to bolster their own authority. I love that. Okay, Robert, what about you? Where uh, Where did the whole monarchy, the love for monarchy start for you? 
Oh, uh, I have watched each episode of The Crown, so maybe that uh, gives you some idea. But I'm <laughs> yes, I'm right there with you, Robert. <laughs> I'm particularly interested in the history of colonialism, and uh, colonialism is closely connected to money, both European states and the states that they conquered. Um, I wrote a book on monarchs in Africa and Asia who were dethroned and banished by the European colonial authorities. And there's some neat little facts there. The British uh, got rid of the last emperor in India and, and uh, transported him to Burma. They got rid of the last king of Burma and exiled him to India. So it's an interesting <laughs> question of what happened to some of these uh, figures in exile, why they were exiled, and uh, how people in those countries now think about these old monarchies and their fate. Um, it's uh, also a good excuse to uh, wander around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Good for travel. It almost sounds like you're describing like the original family feud type television <laughs> show almost when, when you talk about some of these things throughout history with royal families and royalty. It's, uh, it's quite hilarious in some cases. Uh, you mentioned it is The Crown, obviously, a show that's had great interest recently, but the royal family, particularly obviously in the UK but and, and royalty more broadly, it's a, it's a topic that fascinates people around the world. What do you think it is? Uh, even though it might feel like a distant thing to most people in their day their lives. What, what do you think that fascination, fascination is that each of us tends to have with kings and queens of, of today and throughout history? Well, I think one aspect of that, um, Caleb, is the idea of a connection with our own history and our own identity. So even though we ourselves may not come from any kind of royal background, we do um, feel a strong connection with our past and with our history. And even Australia today, although people are, of course, here from, you know, or their families may have come from many different places around the world originally, people still do feel a connection with the British monarchy. Um, I think another aspect, though, is celebrity. And in fact, one of the really interesting things about looking at monarchy today is actually questioning to what extent do we treat people like, for example, Harry and Meghan um, any differently from Kim Kardashian and Kanye West? Is there really anything different about our fascination <laughs> with them? Um, and do they see their role as different? In my personal opinion, Queen Elizabeth is way cooler than Kim Kardashian anyway. What were you going to say? Sorry, Robert? <laughs> well, it also leads to fairy tales, doesn't it? The, uh, the princess who kids, the, the young girl who kisses a frog and he turns into a prince. Uh, monarchy is mystique, it's wealth, it's crowns and scepters, it's palaces, it's the idea of uh, someone rising from the common people to become a ruler. Um, and it, it touches something in, in a lot of people's psyches about success, about uh, power, about wealth, uh, and uh, thus it, it connects with a sort of fantasy mm. as well as reality. So it's like the, the real-life Disney. That's why we love it so much. That's awesome. Um, okay, so... <laughs> Sorry, in times guys. of crisis, like today, I think actually there's all the more need for fantasy. Mm. You know, there's all the more need for us to escape from what's often perhaps a grim reality or just the sheer tedium of life in lockdown. And I think that thinking about princesses, fairy tales, uh, monarchs is, is about part of that kind of allowing us to escape yeah. actually the, the, you know, the, the harder parts of our own reality. Okay, so in the uh, mm. in the bigger picture of all the monarchs that there are in time, and you've done a little bit of history research into like different monarchs, I want to know, out of all the monarchs, which one's your favourite? <laughs> which one is your favourite? Maybe like <laughs> crown family, anything like that. For me, it would have to be Queen Victoria. Um, I think that she it, it, she's someone who 
it's a monarch that we think we know very well. There's been so much written about her, both by scholars and by journalists. Uh, there's so many movies now made of her, about her life. And yet I think that there, she is still really, we only see the tip of the iceberg with Victoria. Um, she has connections, not just um, with the British royal family, but with most of the major dynasties of 19th century Europe. Um, her, uh, you know, family connections are extraordinarily complicated. Um, but she also has interests and engagements with what a large part of, of Asia through her role as Empress of India. Um, and I think she would have been one of the most, her life would have been very interesting in the number of interesting people from around the world that she would have met. She would have come to meet her and visit her uh, in Britain. So for me, that that's my favorite monarch. Okay, Queen, Queen Victoria, I love that. Okay, Robert. Um, she's pretty hard to beat. As a French historian, I would say that Louis XIV and Napoleon give her a run for the money. But for the reasons uh, Sydney outlined, Queen uh, Victoria is probably uh, top of the park. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to do some more, more research because these there's so much history around this that I don't even know. So I've now got some people to research some more and some some, <laughs> some of the best monarchs I now know uh, from from our two experts here who are telling us these are the best uh, the best monarchs of all. I'm going to I'm going to say it that way. They're the best monarchs of all history. <laughs> Now, uh, we'll jump into something a little bit fun here. Uh, it's called the Experts Exam. So throughout the podcast, you know, we'll get you guys to answer some questions and stuff like that. However, this is your chance to, uh, sometimes it's a little bit daunting to be asked all the questions all the time. This is your chance to flip it around and to ask the question uh, to us. So w- we told you a little bit earlier, we did the, the our research uh, into monarchies and we tried to become experts. This is your chance to really explain expose us as frauds in, in a sense of the word to see if we are actually could be experts about monarchies within an hour. So how about I give you a question each? You can both ask a question to see if, uh, if indeed in an hour, we actually could become even slightly experts at this subject. <laughs> we'll see how we go. And I hope every week that they always fall into Cam's question research because <laughs> it's awesome. It's, I'm, I've only had to answer one of these once so far. <laughs> Okay, Cindy, you you can ask the first question. What do you have? Okay, so I know you guys were talking about the differences between constitutional and absolute monarchies. Um, And I'm just going to ask you then, based on that hour of research that you did, that very efficient research, um, can you name one constitutional monarch and one absolute monarch in the world today and just briefly describe, like, the differences in the power that they have? Oh, okay. That's good. Uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to jump in Cam because I think this fits my area of research. Uh, Can I name a constitutional monarch? Well, I I think I can. I think I can name Queen Queen Elizabeth, uh, well known. And constitutional monarch, she doesn't have absolute power in terms of there's a a parliament that rules the the country that she works alongside and obviously still carries some responsibility in, as I'm sure we'll dive into. But to just like to the opposite end of the spectrum, the absolute monarch, I can't name one, but I know, I think Qatar is, has an absolute monarch. Is it, would that be correct to say that Qatar has an absolute monarch? And what, and what that means is in Qatar, there is, there is one, it's either, it's a sovereign ruler, a king or a queen. Again, I'm not sure wh- which it is, but they basically make all the calls mm-hmm. around, around the legislation, the laws, the way people live in Qatar. Uh, can I, yeah. can I get sort of a correct mark yeah, for no, that that's question? Good. I was actually thinking of the Sultan of Brunei, but I suspect that the, the uh, ruler of Qatar would be similar. But for example, um, one of the comparisons between Queen Elizabeth and your absolute right as constitutional monarch is that 
Um, as you say, there's a parliamentary system in Britain. Um, there is a separate prime minister. Boris Johnson is the current prime minister of the UK. Um, in Brunei, it's the same person. So the Sultan of Brunei is also the prime minister of Brunei. Um, but interestingly, right. just as Queen Elizabeth is head of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, um, so in Brunei, the Sultan is head um, there's only one official religion, Islam, and, and the Sultan is, is the sort of head of Islam in, in Brunei. So there are actually some interesting so comparisons. So similarities there. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah, there you go. I didn't know. So this is similar. Okay. So there's, there's half the experts exam. Robert, what have you got for us? I hope this goes <laughs> in Ken's direction. Your direction. <laughs> okay. Uh, maybe both directions. In 1999, we had a Republican referendum in Australia. And, of course, the uh, proposition that Australia become a republic failed. Why? This, I feel like um, I want to say this didn't fall into my research category, but uh, but I don't. I think it fell through the cracks almost. But let's let's see, Caleb, give it a shot. Well, no, we we did we did talk about the idea of of demo, like democracies or, or I'm not sure if that's the right term. Democracies inevitably moving in the direction of republics, so countries that I guess exist under the Commonwealth or things like. The reason why it would have to do with, uh, I don't want to say something is, is it as simple as like pride in our history and, and, and a desire to maintain a connection to the history, the motherland, if you like, was that the reason that we voted against becoming a republic? No, <laughs> not really. <laughs> I mean, there were people, and particularly for older Australians, particularly that demographic uh, did prefer a monarchical system. But I think what you, what's important here is that with the Republican referendum um, and with other discussions about forms of government, it's not an either or. That in the case of the Republican referendum, it was more about the particular model of a republic that was being proposed that um, the kind of vote no campaign successfully persuaded people that that wasn't um, a better alternative than the, the status quo. So it's really important to kind of think it's not okay. either republic or monarchy, but what kind of republic? Could you have a republic with a monarchy? It's yeah. actually something Robert and I have been talking about with our students this week. Oh, wow. There you go. Well, there you go. I think it's safe to say I missed the mark there. Uh, I'm a little nervous to ask this because I know you're uh, both heavily involved with university <laughs> and marking. You're well associated. With. What grade would you give us if you were to mark that experts exam? Would we, would we pass? Are we are we getting a pass? Um, <laughs> I could do better. Oh, yeah. I could do better. <laughs> We're trying to be generous in the current COVID-19 situation, so we're always telling our students we're being very compassionate. So um, I think a credit, a credit would oh, be... Oh, that's great. I'm giving us a round of applause there. A yeah, credit. Which is between, I should say, between okay. a 65 and a 74. Oh, that's great. I was, a a compassionate I was thinking credit. 49%. That. I thought maybe we just, we just failed, but I'll take that. That's yeah. excellent. It's a, it's a COVID credit. Uh, it's a yeah, COVID like credit. it's a COVID credit. It's, we'll it's, you know, we're trying a to COVID encourage students here, so that's fine. It's worth about 75% as it's much as a normal credit, except uh, it's, it's still a credit. <laughs> And don't forget, there to you go. Okay. don't forget to send the check. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. We're going to take that. I think, I think we're getting worse at these as weeks go on, Cam. I don't, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to keep getting better at our research. But, hey, let's dive into the, the questions. Let's get the real experts to start answering these. Uh, we, started out, we started off our research with a very we, – we like to start kind of right at the beginning. And, of course, the question, where did monarchies begin? We were almost discussing this before we got on the call, uh, Cindy, when you were talking 
talking about timelines and we need to understand just how far back we're going, but also where it started. Cause there was a starting point. It's not like there was a King T-Rex that ruled the world when dinosaurs <laughs> roamed. It started sometime yeah. after that. So perhaps to open that question, Cindy, could you give us an idea of the timeline that we're, we're talking about when we talk about the idea of a monarchy? Yeah, sure. Um, and okay. And I know just in kind of lighthearted vein, let's be clear about the, the periodization and when dinosaurs are on the earth and when um, the first humans and Kings are on earth. Yeah. So, so dinosaurs, as, as you'll know from a quick Google search are on the earth between 243 and 233 million years ago, but they're, they're made extinct. We think through something like a, a catastrophe, like an asteroid collision with the earth in 66 million years ago. Okay. Now the first humans or, or, or be, you know, precursors of humans aren't around until at the earliest two to 0.1 million years ago. And really Homo sapiens, our species are, are really not evident before 300,000 years ago. And as we know, they, um, the evidence is that they, um, people began or human society began in, in Africa. Um, and then you have through um, periods like the Bronze Age and sorry, the Stone Age and then the Bronze Age, which are named because of the use of tools, simple stone tools, and then later metalwork becomes more sophisticated, you have not just one, but multiple centers of civilization. So one of the things that's important when we're thinking about monarchy is not just to think about kings and queens in European history, but to think about monarchs and monarchies across the globe. And certain centers of civilization are really important, we know, in the ancient period. You've got, I think you mentioned this um, on Tuesday, the Sumerian civilization, what's now southern Iraq. You have Norte Chico in what's now Peru in South America. You have the Indus Valley civilization in what's now Pakistan. Um, and you have obviously ancient Egypt, which you talked about. So these are all sites where we could talk about the early um, development of monarchy. Um, but I think we need to be mindful that that doesn't mean that everyone was called a king or queen, which of course we're using English terms, but to use the Latin Rex, think of T-Rex, the, the dinosaur, um, that there are other terms being used. So we shouldn't just be limited to the idea of kings and queens, and we should think of multiple sites for the beginning of monarchies. But I think you're absolutely right when you're talking about we could look at pharaohs in ancient Egypt as an example of, of monarchy. But the, what's, what's key is understanding about monarchical rules as opposed to just other kinds of rulers is that there has to be, I think, this element uh, with, with monarchs of an idea of power that is somehow linked to um, a, a spiritual power by a supreme being, and also the idea that this is power that's going to be inherited. So that typically an elder son, but a family member will inherit this power, as opposed to, for example, military rulers who are simply um, changing as as you know one person beats another in in, in a battle. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm I'm delighted with the fact that it does in the Latin actually go back to T-Rex. I totally <laughs> said that in jest, but it sounds like T-Rex is almost. <laughs> but okay, so I'll, I'll, this is probably an annoying question for a scholar of history like yourself, but I'll try it. Could you, with the evidence available, based on work of scholars over years and years and years, could you point to one character who we think may be the first type of monarchical ruler? Uh, maybe not a king or queen, maybe not a T-Rex, somewhere in between. Is there is there a single individual in history who we point to and say, we think this was the first person who ruled in this kind of way? Well, I should say that this is not my area of expertise. I'm going off Google. I'm going off Wikipedia. 
and there are different ways to answer this, right? But I think one of the, 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 the groups that are identified are the Sumerian kings, and, and, and we should say that this is also linked to writing, right? So history and the way that we distinguish between periods of time that are prehistory and historical periods is because of written evidence. So when we have things like the list of kings, of Sumerian kings, that's one way that historians say, okay, here's some evidence that we can use to say these are the first kings because this is what we've got evidence for. Now, that doesn't mean that those are really the first kings in history, but they're the first kings that we may be able to use evidence to, to delineate as, as monarchs, if that makes sense. Totally. Absolutely. Robert, you are going to add something, I believe. Um, it's a flippant comment, but I would say the first king was Adam because uh, he was the only person in the world, but also because he established the first family, which gets the idea of power over nature and over creation, delegated by the Christian or the Jewish God, but also the, the fact of creating a family and passing that on with the hereditary principle. And, and that notion of uh, monarchy that goes back to a mythical time is, is really important in a lot of mythologies, not just the Christian one. You mentioned the Japanese monarchy in your first podcast. The Japanese emperor traditionally claimed descent from the sun goddess, and, and it is the oldest lasting dynasty in the world. So this connection, not just with the first kings, but with, with a creator, is, is part of the, the power and mystique of any dynasty. That's good. I've got a kind of question, I guess it kind of lies in the between of like when they kind of, you know, began when, when monarchy started kind of existing to, uh, I guess where we'll kind of go with, you know, next with, uh, which countries still have a monarchy today, but kind of in the middle, uh, when did the whole monarchy power shift happen? Like when did monarchies maybe um, step aside and we started seeing things like uh, prime ministers come in where monarchies no longer were the sole ruler? Is there a particular time where that started to happen or a reason that that started happening? Um, it wasn't really something that we came across in our study. Um, so, you know, the monarchies at some point, have turned into maybe this more constitutional, this very like uh, this this crown family, and don't hold as much power. Was there a particular time where that that happened, or a place that happened? I think there are different ways to answer that, and um, uh, one answer is something that you guys were talking about earlier. You you talked in your earlier discussion about the idea of um, enlightenment and revolution, which is a period um, that in Europe we can look at in the eighteenth. And late 18th centuries. Um, but even before then, um, in, in Britain, for example, in the 17th century, you have a civil war, a very brutal civil war. And for a brief period, um, they execute the king, they execute Charles I, and then there's a period of a commonwealth, of a republic. Um, so there are, and there are other examples of, of um, in European history and continental Europe, of peasant revolts, of, of brief periods of of more what we would today call democratic rule. Now they're often overturned and you see a return of monarchical power. And I, I really wanna be clear, it's not that monarchy is this old fashioned idea that's somehow replaced by republics. You, you, you can see that there are um, in time and in different places, uh, different systems of government um, interchanging. Um, and we should be very careful about assuming that the age of monarchy is over um, because I don't think that's true at all. If anything, I think we can see resurgence of monarchy or at least sympathy for monarchical regimes in many parts of the world as people get frustrated with, with democracy. Um, and there are other alternatives as well. I mean, you could talk about fascism and other types of 
of government systems that are neither republics nor monarchies. But I think in terms of Europe or Western Europe, you really do see a really clear challenge to monarchical rule, particularly with events like the French Revolution um, in, and particularly in 1789 in Paris, where you see very clear articulation of, of new systems and alternatives to monarchical government. But sorry, Robert, I think you wanted to say something. No, I was going to mention the French Revolution, but even before that, the revolutions in the Americas from 1776 in what became the United States to the 1820s in South America. And that too is a period of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was not necessarily uh, a, a movement that favored republicanism, but it did talk about the citizen, it talked about rights, it talked about constitutions and parliamentarianism. And for some of the political activists, that did imply a republican form of government, or at least a constitutional monarchy, rather than an absolutist monarchy. That's good. Yeah. So it kind of has, uh, you know, developed over over a number of times, and that's why I, I like what you said there, Cindy. It's not like it's actually the end of the monarchy kind of time. It's actually we're maybe looking towards going more in that direction um, at the moment. So I really like what you said there. Maybe now we can look a little bit bigger. You know, which countries still have a monarchy today? Maybe are there any particular ones that you think do the whole monarchy thing? very well, like having the two different things or absolute monarchy really well? Are there any that stand out to you? Well, uh, Europe is, is one prime example. And in most of the European countries, the monarchs are ceremonial figures. These are constitutional monarchies with limited powers. The monarch is a figure of national unity, a figure uh, who rises above politics, as you said in your podcast who is a celebrity. Another cluster of monarchies is in the Middle East, and there, they're much more absolutist monarchies in places like Saudi Arabia, where there's a very large, very powerful, very wealthy royal family. Um, throughout the Gulf, there are kings and emirs and sultans um, who are really important in international affairs, and exercise a very strong arm control over their own country. Um, that leaves a few other monarchies in places like uh, Bhutan, country in the Himalayas, Cambodia, Thailand, uh, Japan, um, and uh, Tonga in the South Pacific. Uh, and some of those are really interesting because of the, the Thai monarchy. The, the Thai king is the richest person in Thailand. The, the Thai monarchy has a great power. Uh, the Thai monarch is considered semi-divine. Um, and, and that's a very different conception of a monarchy from that of, say, Denmark or Norway or, or Spain. Does it have to do with kind of the development of a country technologically, uh, the availability of education to people? Do those kinds of things tie into when we see perhaps countries moving from this kind of absolute monarchy through to a republic or a constitutional monarchy or perhaps what we would consider a more contemporary style leader of a country? Is that, would that be a correct understanding of how that can kind of happen? And perhaps are there any countries that are going through that transition at the current time where we're seeing what has traditionally been an absolute monarchy for a long time, uh, transitioning towards perhaps some other type of government at the moment because of any of those factors that I just mentioned. 
That's an interesting and complicated question. If we look at some of the European monarchies, say in the Scandinavian countries, those are among the countries with the highest standard of living, the greatest level of transparency, the most uh, uh, democratic societies. Uh, if we look at some of the monarchies in the Middle East, they are in countries that we generally consider quite the opposite in terms of human rights and democracy. Um, so we have to be a little bit careful about talking about some predictable evolution from, from one system to another. Are there countries that are in transition? Uh, I think countries always are in transition in one sense. Uh, we've seen some of the, the monarchies in the world trying to strengthen their power uh, and, and others where those powers are, are essentially residual anyway. Yeah, there you go. It's really interesting to consider the reason that certain monarchies exist still the way they do. Because I think in my own mind, perhaps this is a misconception that I'm trying to get my head through as I'm listening to you speak about this. Countries that still have an absolute monarchy, I could make the assumption as an Australian, oh, they're just living in history more than we are. They've not developed as far as... But that would be a mistake, I think, is what I'm hearing. There's too many factors to consider that the people in those countries, the rulers in those countries, it's not that they have... Tr it's not that they're behind in a sense. It's that they choose to exist in that way because of some sort of spiritual belief or some, or maybe there's factors throughout history that, that are in place that mean they, they haven't needed to transition there's been no kind of uproar or revolution um, from the people so I think that's a misconception I think that you're addressing uh, in my own mind and I think important for us to consider yes that's right and also think of yet another case to make it even more complex where you have dynasties without kings look at North Korea uh, which now has a third generation of the same family as the ruler think of other political dynasties around the world uh, the, the Kennedys in America, the Gandhis and Marys in India, and uh, you have a kind of Republican or non-Republican uh, royal family phenomenon as well. So when we're thinking about some of these monarchies that are still around today, uh, you, you mentioned Japan there as one of the longest lasting kind of monarchies uh, throughout history. Um, what makes what makes Japan continue on this kind of trajectory? Is it like we've talked a little bit about the kind of the spiritual head or something like that? Is there a different kind of anything that's special for Japan that they've kind of throughout history and still today they're still going, this is the way that we want to uh, have the monarchy in our country? That's an interesting case because the Japanese emperor was considered a, a, a divine figure until the Second World War, and then Japan was defeated. There was a big question about whether the Americans would allow Japan to keep the emperor, and they decided they would. But the, the new constitution um, specifically defines him as a symbol emperor. So he doesn't even have some of the powers that Queen Elizabeth has. Oh. He doesn't assent to legislation. He doesn't appoint the ministers. Um, he can't dismiss the prime minister. He's seen as a symbol of the Japanese nation, of Japanese culture, of the, the unity of, of the people. So in, in fact, he has a, a totally ceremonial and symbolic role, but that's still something strong enough to link into the, the Japanese population. And, and the, the last emperors have said that it's been their challenge really to 
to work out what their role is. And, and sometimes they found that by uh, visiting disaster sites, by engaging in philanthropic work, in continuing some of the old royal traditions, really to prove that they, they have a reason to continue to exist. So do you think that may change in the future? Do you think that, um, you know, uh, is, I'm particularly talking about Japan here, um, do you think it may move towards uh, not an absolute monarchy, but having a bit more of that that power there? Um, historians are not very good soothsayers. Um, <laughs> we look at the past, not the future. Um, I don't think there's any particular Republican movement in Japan. Uh, there's certainly no desire for the emperor's powers to increase. I think the, the constitution and the political system um, seem to work quite well in the Japanese case. Um, so if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yep, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. So maybe if we uh, turn back to a monarch that we know well, the, the, the English monarch, the Queen of England, um, what's, to, what's to say, you know, can Queen Elizabeth, uh, can she uh, grab power of England and can she start reigning? The, I guess that's a question we didn't fully answer, but can that actually happen? Well, you did answer that question in the sense that she has uh, reserve powers, but uh, she would never exercise them. And I don't think her successors would, would ever exercise them. That would cause anti-monarchism. It would cause a, a, a revolution, perhaps, in, in Britain. Um, the, the monarch does her duty, or presumably in her successors' case, his duty. Um, and that means not exercising. The powers. So it's a, it's a funny situation that the, the duty is not doing what you could do. We've got Cindy rejoining us here. Uh, Cindy, we're currently talking about uh, why Queen Elizabeth hasn't Taken back the uh, taken back the throne, whether she could um, and why she hasn't. But uh, Robert just gave a good answer there, basically saying, you know, uh, that would probably cause people being anti-monarchy in the end. Is if we if we did see the queen. Um, do that. Have we seen any of that in recent times? Have we seen any monarchs actually take back the throne in, in the recent history? Yeah. Um, so if we go back to that example of Brunei um, that we were talking about earlier, um, it is the case that the Sultan of Brunei today has more power than the Sultan of Brunei in the 1950s and 60s. And there was a very clear uh, pattern of that Sultan, uh, who's the previous Sultan to the current um, Sultan, uh, his father, uh, take back more power, more absolute power. Um, and it was in the context of decolonization of Britain, um, really wanting access to Brunei's oil. And that allowed the Sultan to negotiate an extension of his power. Uh, and it was also in the context of anxiety in Britain and America about the rise of communism in the Cold War era. And so again, by positioning himself and his kingdom as a kind of independent anti-communist state, the then Sultan Brunei was able to negotiate more power for himself. So it's definitely the case that monarchs can increase their power in certain circumstances, um, as, as well as, um, you know, 
It seems to me that there's this dynamic throughout history, and and I'm uh, perhaps I want to point to King Louis the Fourteenth here because there seems to be that this pattern seems to be particularly evident um, in his seventy-two year reign. We found out that while monarchs are rulers, there's no doubt about that. They can only rule for so long as the people choose to let them to some degree. They they can have they can even in the situation of an absolute monarch, sure, they have absolute power. But as soon as monarchs throughout history seem to do something that the majority of the, of their population uh, that they that they are the sovereign ruler of decide, no, that doesn't quite fit our national interest. We're going to overthrow them. And of course, it's it's much more complicated than that and it takes years of revolution and things like that. But this idea that monarchs while having power, must act within the people's interest to retain that power. Is that a dynamic that that I'm recognizing correctly throughout history? And perhaps you can reference it to King Louis' story of being able to successfully reign for such a long time. Well, if I may say, Caleb, that's a gross oversimplification um, of the relationship of the people to the monarch. Um, if you think about the context you just referred to, Louis XIV in early modern Europe and France, um, it's not so much that kings lose their thrones when they lose the support of their people or people think they're not ruling the best interests. It's when enough people with power, and if you like the power brokers in that society, feel that the monarch no longer represents their interests. That's when monarchs really have to be very worried. So if we think a little bit later, also staying, staying with France, Louis XVI, um, who's uh, the king um, uh, before the French Revolution, one of the, the main reasons for the French Revolution is, is that the state is bankrupt, that the state literally cannot pay um, for its very expensive wars, which are actually a legacy of Louis XIV, that earlier ruler. So Louis XIV, I think, you know, his power needs to be understood, not just in terms of, yes, he reigned for 72 years and was clearly you know, a very influential and powerful figure, but the kind of knock-on effects of his huge expenditure on military adventures in France actually meant that, you know, in, it, by, the, by the end of the 18th century, France was bankrupt and, and his descendant, Louis the, the 16th, lost his head. So I think that we need to be a bit more careful about how we link power mm. with popular support. I think that's a very modern notion and something that we in Australia would think, of course, it depends on whether people have faith. Well, you know, it, it depends on whether the people who really control things, so things like, for example, in France, the, the clergy and the nobility who start to lose confidence in, in Louis XVI. Um, that, that's, as well as other people, that, that's, I think, the key, not just whether everyone in the, in the country starts to lose heart mm-hmm. in the monarch. Yeah, go ahead, Robert. Um, you, you're on to a good point, though, that monarchs face many challenges. Uh, one of them is revolution and republicanism. Another is family feuds and the question of who succeeds to the throne. In some of the Asian countries where kings had many wives, there were many candidates to, to succeed to the throne. Uh, one of the kings of Thailand in the late 19th century had 100 children. Lots <laughs> of possible kings or queens from various wives, all of whom were strategizing to make sure their son generally was was well placed. Uh, another challenge kings face is assassination. Um, in the early 20th century, the uh, the king of Italy, the king of Portugal, the heir to the Austrian throne, the king of Yugoslavia were all assassinated. Um, so sometimes the, the challenges to monarchy come from the people, but as Sidney said, they often come from an elite in the people. They can also come from inside the palace. 
Okay, people uh, inside planning against them. That's, Especially yeah, that, when that there's a hundred kids. Especially yeah. uh, in a situation <laughs> where there's like a hundred. <laughs> 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 makes makes things a little bit crazy. Uh, Robert, you did say before, uh, you know, you, you look a lot more at the history, so sometimes you find it hard to look to the future. I guess one of the questions that we asked ourselves was, what does the future of uh, monarchies look like? And Sin, you kind of answered this in a way before, um, that maybe we'll see a resurgence of that. Is there anything that you can necessarily point to that kind of um, that makes it look like, you know, monarchies will just always continue or is there anything that makes it seem not that way? Robert's pointing to you, Cindy. Oh, okay. Uh, sorry. <laughs> oh. um, I, obviously, again, we need to be particular, careful about particular contexts. Um, I don't I don't want to suggest exactly. that yep. monarchies everywhere have an equal chance of success of re- retaining or indeed increasing power. Um, I don't think, for example, there's any likelihood that the United States of America is going to become a monarchy. Okay, I think that's that's not likely. <laughs> but I think if we look at the British... I'm very Trump. carefully. President yeah. Trump could... <laughs> King Trump sounds good. <laughs> See, this is where you have to be really careful Sorry, about the difference dictator. between different types of power. There are lots of rulers and mm. there are lots of uh, individuals with huge amounts of power, but that doesn't mean they're monarchs. So whatever you think about President Trump, I don't think he's going to start calling himself <laughs> King Donald. Um, uh, even though we might I think you'd like it. With, um, you know, imperial or indeed even dictatorial uh, rulers. Um, but thinking about Britain, I think that there's... Uh, a lot of reasons to expect that the monarchy will continue. However, I don't think that that means that the current uh, regard and respect that the current monarch, Queen Elizabeth, has will necessarily be continued in future monarchs. And a lot of people have talked about that, that uh, with the end of the of the current uh, reign, I think we can expect to see some big differences in the relationship of, of people in Britain and indeed around the world with, with the British monarch. So I think that that's important, that the, the dignity that this current queen has um, and her popularity is remarkable, and we shouldn't take that for granted. I don't think that that all future British monarchs would would necessarily have anything like that that kind of um, support. Mm. What, Robert? Perhaps you could elaborate. What about in in Southeast Asia, uh, in the Middle East? What what do you would you say anything about the future of these types of monarchs and how that might look different to perhaps we've we've spoken fondly of Queen Elizabeth. I'm I'm sure not all uh, monarchs would be spoken of quite as fondly throughout the world. Yes, you do need to look at particular circumstances. For example, Cambodia. Cambodia has a king, his name is Sihamoni. He's the son of a, a previous king. And yet uh, Cambodia is largely dominated by its long-term prime minister who rules in an authoritarian fashion. Current king doesn't have children and is not likely to have children. His father, the previous king, said that uh, King Sihamoni loves women as he loves his sisters. Um, <laughs> So um, there is no obvious heir apparent to the throne, although there are various other royals. What will happen to the Cambodian monarchy? It's probably one of the less secure ones. Okay. That's interesting. That's one to keep our eyes out for then, I guess. Um, I guess final thoughts. Uh, what would you say to people who maybe through listening to this conversation or even, um, you know, have had a fascination with the monarchies before, what would you say to them is a great way to maybe look into this more or even history in, in general? What's a great way that they can look into that? Well, you could come and do a postgraduate degree with us. Uh, but I, I think something that we've become aware of in looking at monarchies is that they are 
serious, both the individuals and the institutions. And we often just think in terms of, of um, fictional portrayals and Harry and Meghan and the Corgis. But uh, in fact, the history of monarchy says a lot about theories of government. It says uh, a lot about the way that a nation and a people portray themselves and conceptualize themselves. It says a lot about uh, how the rest of the world regards celebrities and how uh, monarchs occupy an important cultural role in countries as well. So I, I think for people who, who have an interest, maybe one that is promoted by the Crown or other other popular versions um, can delve into some of these uh, really serious and fascinating aspects of, of monarchy. Yeah, and I would just add to that that I think, um, and we'd love everyone listening to think about doing uni because I think uni is a great way to discuss these topics more thoroughly. But but in addition to that, you know, if you're just in Australia, if you go on to Trove, which is the National Library of Australia's website, it gives you full access to many Australian newspapers, both current but also historical newspapers, going back to the 19th century. And if you just did some searches of, you know, um, the, the, the Queen Victoria or whatnot, you'd be amazed, I think, to see how important the British royal family is not just in Australia today, but was to people in the past. Um, but that doesn't mean that doesn't also include critiques of, of, of monarchy and ideas about national and local and regional identity. And I think that in general, I just encourage Australians to, to look at the sources we have, whether that's in, in the National Library and a lot of that stuff's online and the state libraries are doing a fantastic job now putting their collections online, not just um, newspapers and letters, but also visual materials, so photographs. And you can really get, a, I think, in a very, you know, in your hour of power, you can actually get a pretty good overview of how like local people in Australia over history have responded to monarchy. Um, not just the British monarchy, but but other monarchies. And I think that that just is helpful to get a sense of who we are and where we've come from, whatever our own individual backgrounds and interests are. And so I, I encourage Australians to use the wonderful resources we've got in our national and state libraries and museums um, who are doing a fantastic job in this crisis to make their um, material available um, through yeah, digitization. And I, and I would say as well, specifically to you, because because you're here with us today, Cindy and Robert, not only thank you for joining us on this podcast, but to, to you as historians and historians everywhere, thank you for what you contribute to our knowledge, to society, because I love I love that saying, we stand on the shoulders of giants, and it's only because we pay attention to history and we mm -hmm. learn from things um, have gone by that, that we can do that. So thank you um, for doing what you do. Uh, it's fantastic. And not only does it add value but it creates fantastic uh, entertainment as far as shows like The Crown from work from work of historians and as well. Um, just just quickly to finish, is The Crown very accurate? I just needed to confirm that. You can actually look online, and there are several sites now that point out inaccuracies. Uh, the makers of The Crown never claimed that it would be factually accurate everywhere. I think they do get a good sense or feel of what's going on, although some episodes invented. There you go. Okay, well, myth busted. Thank you so much for joining us today, Robert and Cindy. Uh, before we do say farewell, is there anything that you haven't had the chance to say that you would like to say to the listeners? I just want to say thank you to um, Caleb and, and Cam. I think you're doing a great job and I hope that people appreciate this, the way that you're kind of broadening discussion on a range of topics. I think that one of the great things about Australia is that we do have the freedom and the ability to have these discussions. And I think it's important. I think it's all important that we, whatever your views on monarchy are, that we have this yeah. discussion and we think about it. 
um, both in its historical context, but also what it means for us in Australia today and what the future means, because we are a democracy and we do get to have a say and, and we need to be Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for bringing so much knowledge and sustenance to this conversation today. Hopefully the listeners enjoy it. If you guys are listening today, do want to get in touch with Robert and Cindy, uh, maybe ask some questions about how you could be a part of some of their studies, um, do a university degree and, and be involved in more of these conversations going forward. You can certainly find them. Um, details will be below when we post this podcast. But thank you very much and uh, bye for now. Thank you. Bye, Caleb. Thank bye, Kim. Thanks. Bye. Well, there we go. There's the interview. I think they deserve a massive round of applause there for uh, their expertise in particular. But, uh, you know, for coming on the podcast and being able to share so much history, things that uh, we weren't even able to understand from our hour of research there, uh, truly a very fun and insightful interview there and they did tell us and uh at the end there that you know you can contact them you can even go and study with them university of sydney is the place to go if you want to do that so feel free to reach out to them or even study with them if you'd like to learn more caleb what is one thing that really fascinated you from the podcast one thing that you took away that just like absolutely blew your mind that you didn't actually understand from our research at the beginning of the week the the passion the passion from both our experts was really good there i love that dr cindy even called me out she was like that is a gross <laughs> simplification I thought that was brilliant uh, one thing that I really enjoyed was the human element that they brought to yep. it I, I talked multiple times on during the interview uh, particularly when Robert was talking about certain topics it was amazing to me to think about uh, the people who still live in perhaps absolute monarchies throughout Southeast Asia or the Middle East and, and, and that's not it's not that they're less developed or they haven't progressed as far as other perhaps Western society nations like I might assume being an ignorant Australian that I am <laughs> Um, but to think about different ways of life that people yeah. might enjoy. I loved I loved that human element that they brought to it. Yes, that's exactly right. So we really enjoyed the, the interview with them and we hope that all our listeners have enjoyed as well. Feel free to continue reaching out to us, asking us about topics to look into. We always love looking into topics that you're interested in as well. For all those details on how you can contact them, you can look in the description below or on how to contact us. Feel free to reach out via social media. But for now, thanks for listening to the Hour of Power podcast and we'll see you next week for our next episode.